Hi, this is Giuseppe. Hi, this is Anthony. And you're listening to For the Love of Sophia. A philosophy podcast brought to you by the Public Philosophy Project. If you have any questions or suggestions, feel free to email us at publicphilproject at gmail.com. Enjoy the ride. Okay, guys. Hello, welcome back. Welcome back. Don't remember to remember to support us on Patreon there. Yes, well, just, you know, subscribe. Subscribe. <laughs> right. That sounds so. Fake I feel to like say a, like a YouTuber now. Yeah, I have to uh, stop saying this now. I'm gonna go <laughs> but, cry in the corner. Um, but you, I hopefully you guys had a good holidays. Yes. Uh, Christmas is over. New Year is over. For you. For you, not for us. We're in the past. We are in the past. We we always in the past. And today is a it's gonna be a great episode. We have one guest. Uh, a new guest is not Sal, nor, nor Claire. Nor Claire. Uh, we have our colleague and good friend, Gene Nasser. Dr. Gene uh, Nasser. Dr. Gene Nasser, <laughs> professor of philosophy and history Yes. Um, at the same school where we teach, which I don't think we ever mentioned and we will not mention, uh, and also um, at a local high school. Yep. Um, am I forgetting anything, Gene? Uh, about he is a, uh, how can we say, a scholar of Schopenhauer. Mm, that's right. And uh, which we may talk about one day. One day, that'd be good. With Gene. With Gene. <laughs> and um, today we're going to talk about something hopefully interesting. Yeah, we're going to talk about history. So, what's up, Gene? How you doing? <laughs> <laughs> I'm much better than I'm here. Thank that's, you. That's uh, it's nice to finally do this. We've talked about this for a while, so yes. to actually be sitting here all mic'd up is, is very cool. Yeah, it is nice, and you know, even though we are exhausted because it's towards the end of the semester for everybody here, mm-hmm. uh, we're, we're looking forward to do this. And yes. ho- hopefully you guys will enjoy it too. It's not just us three geeks talking about this. So um, we always start with this basic question, the, the meta question, which is what even is history in the first place? And, and maybe a good place to start, Gene, I think you probably know this better than anyone. What do you think people typically think of when they hear the word history? Totally unstudied the lay person. Or your, your students, your high school students, when they come from middle school, what do they think? Um, wow, that's a good, that's a good question. <laughs> um, it depends on, uh, well, so Herodotus is considered the first historian by a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But then if you listen to David Hume, he's like, no, nah, it's Thucydides. He's the first one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the only thing that we're agreed upon is that's coming out of ancient Greece. <laughs> so the the practice of history, the the formal practice, we would say Herodotus goes, well, I don't know if these are true. I'm going to write them down. You make up your own mind, your mm-hmm. judgment. And in that regard, that kind of sets the tone, I think, for the historical process going forward that there was a, we would presuppose there was a lack of narrative. Mm-hmm that these are just the events, I'm going to catalog them, mm. and then you can make up your own mind. Um, when most people think about, so that's like the formal practice of history. Well, what is history? Well, you take a history class, that's what's going to happen. You're going to read a book by Zerudin, some people, and they're going to tell you these events. <laughs> yeah. And like, what do they expect when they walk into your class? Right. Well, they, they, they uh, well, kids, or, or the layperson, they... Whose history is this? Oh. There, it's my, now today the, the landscape has definitely changed. Huh. The focus is now not when it started. There was no narrative. We're trying to get away from narrative. Now it's all about whose narrative is this? Ooh. So there's like a skepticism to start with. Uh, yeah, there's a there's a I would say so, and and in some ways I think it's a very healthy skepticism because we used to just take what the historian wrote in the past, and uh, this is we take this for gospel truth. Um, a lot of people do that. Somebody wrote this history book, and you know that's it. That's the standard, and we mm. it stays there. And then new discoveries are made, different perspectives are brought in. All these sort of years roll forward, and you get to where we are now. And it's like, wait, not just not just perspective, but whose history? Mm-hmm. Um, what was the po- what's the position of the person actually doing the history? Because you can't conceal the narrative. Got mm. it. So, which is interesting, because I think it, it kind of brings back this uh, idea of story to the to this history thing, right? 
somebody's telling a story, somebody, and it seems to be the preoccupation now it is becoming more who's telling the story rather than the story itself, which is, again, interesting. You're saying it's good, and I think that there was a need at a certain point, um, a need for this, but I'm wondering, and maybe you know we can talk about this a little bit, I'm wondering if this is, um, I don't want to use the word productive, uh, if this is good for us, right? Because we're shifting from a narrative that can be uh, objective or objectivating, I don't know how to say it, mm-hmm. um, towards an absolutely subjective narrative to the point that I had the feeling that people tend to believe, start thinking that there could be different history for the same event, which is, mm. which might be like a metaphysically so, interesting point of view, but it yeah. is divisive. And he, he, uh, we were reading Kierkegaard before, I was reading Kierkegaard before, it's like this idea that we are destroying the universal and creating small particular stuff, right? And I'm wondering if this is any good. So like, like everything else is history just falling into the relativistic garbage heap. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm wondering, like, to back up a second, what is history even about? Right, like I think the typical conception is that it has something to do with the past, whatever that means, right? Yeah. It, so now we're getting to issues of time. So technically, that statement you just said, now that's in the past, right? If we're gonna, Ooh, true. Right. True. So the time is always folding forward. So we un- we live life forward, but we only understand it backwards. Mm. So there's a real, there's a, there's a vow. So when you say, oh, I'm studying history, that's to understand what preceded you to where you currently are. Um, so it is, it is a matter of studying what happened before in order to understand oh, now? To, is, is yeah, this? I think it was, uh, it was either Goethe or maybe Herodotus, to not understand what happened before you were born, you will always remain a child. Mm. So there's a, there's a, and 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 um, so there's a there's a debate over certain um, w- w- within historians about how much you get into issues based of historicism. Mm-hmm. It w- it, the past is not more real than the present, but you can't understand the present without understanding what happened before mm-hmm. before now. So you have to you have to put it. You, it's all these disparate events. So you need someone to put it in order for you. And this is where the narrative comes in. Mm-hmm. Um, today, what people are focused on, but um, when we're doing history, we're trying to learn. Okay, there's an event. We can all uh, agree that the Const- when the Constitutional Convention was and where it happened, um, so on and so forth. Uh, and we can, um, but we can disagree about who that event was good for. Uh, maybe it impacted some people disparately, or mm-hmm. um, you know, something of a three fifths compromise. Um, or maybe it did something good, like the Great Compromise, where it got the small and the, the small states and the big large states to come together and get this bicameral legislature. So we all agree that we wrote that document and it happened, but now we're going to argue over these different narratives uh, that are competing within the same objective document that mm-hmm. we all agree mm-hmm. was written. Um, there was a push. Uh, I think the turn of the 20th century. There was um, where. Philosophers were trying to ask that same that very question: What exactly are we doing when we do history? And you're you are you're actively mining the past, but the the when philosophers put their finger on it, you're trying to find causation. Mm-hmm. You're trying to find natural causation. So they would refer to that maybe as a human science. Then w- when you're trying to and em- you're basically trying to emulate the natural sciences through this. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering also. I remember. I think the French school eventually in the 70s, 60s, I want to say, like with Lagoff and these guys, mm-hmm. right? They switched also this narrative between from the general history, the, 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 the big events history to this micro history, right? And it, they come out with all those studies on the, you know, everyday life in the Middle Ages. How was that for the little guy? There is not just kings and queens and conquerors and wars, but let's look at the event, the, the way you know, people lived and what does it mean to be a woman in uh, in ancient mm. Greece and all this stuff. So there is a switch eventually, I think, in, in the way in which we study this thing. But I guess the consistent thing is that we're looking at something that happened before, right? 
Right. Well, the issue you run in, I think, with sort of looking at someone from, like, say, lower classes of society is there's a lack of evidence. Not that there's no, they didn't write anything and leave anything behind. And that's what the historian is sort of pushed to go after. They usually go after these sort of upper crust sources, if you will, the intelligentsia, people have written things. It's only more recently they, you, you start to get this sort of intertwining. Now, archaeology has always been involved in history, so mm-hmm. on and so forth, but you would have to find out about those people by doing like an archaeological dig. Yeah. So you'd go mm. find out where they threw the garbage, go dig that up, and you'll actually kind of learn something about them. Yeah. But you can't find – it's going to be hard to find a written source. So when you do find those diaries, that's gold because mm-hmm. then that gives you the best insight into how a woman may have lived in the exactly. Middle Ages, something like that. It's cool. It's cool. So a couple things I'm wondering. Um, the first thing I think is more basic, and then the second thing is more targeted. The first thing is if you think about the word history and like how people use it regularly, mm-hmm. I feel like it, it can point to one of at least two things. The one thing is, oh, this thing's history. Oh, that was history, right? Mm-hmm. And you literally mean the thing itself, right? The actual thing in the past. And then there's this second conception of history, which is it's not the actual thing in the past, but it's some putting together facts about or the narrativizing of the things about the past. And I'm wondering from the perspective of a historian or a philosopher of history, do you see any meaningful distinction between those two? And if so, what is it? So between like the actual event, is that history, right? The thing that happened? Or is history the the gathering of facts about that thing and making a narrative about the thing? Oh, that's a good question. So this is, uh, so we do get into, so Nietzsche, we get into pro- like differential repetition. Mm-hmm. So I think that's kind of, I'll come back to, to, to your question through through that. So there is a historians argue this and there are periods of historiography where different history is done during different periods of time because the emphasis is different so we should keep that in mind too so history written in the 1960s is going to be vastly different in tone and intact from a history written today Mm -hmm. the climate of the country is very different so the the secondary stuff is going to change depending on when in time you're looking at that past event. So in the 60s, you're going to look at maybe, let's just, uh, uh, for argument's sake, more radical leftist. Sure. Mm-hmm. And then um, in the 80s, that's going to, or not just 1980s, 1990, that's going to, it's going to go back to swing conservative. But the event hasn't changed. Yes. We have today. So that's the difference. So, and the argument is that, just like Nietzsche said, you get differential rep- repetition from the original, it's, near impossible for the historian to figure out the impact of something that's novel. Mm-hmm. Okay. Usually what happens, so somebody, let's say, writes a work, work X, they put it out there, and then it's mind-blowing to everybody who's living at the time, and you start to see all this information about the impact that this work X had, but you when you can't get back to that original point. What you get is, you get the differential repetition after that main event, mm-hmm. what Nietzsche was talking about, and historians are well aware of this. I guess, like an example, I'm thinking of something super mundane. It's like if I just knock on the table, right? Okay, is the me knocking on the table the history, or is it me now trying to figure out the most accurate ways of explaining that history? Or, in other words, is history the actual thing, or? a certain relationship we have with the actual thing, if that makes but sense. I, hmm. So I think that the the event, even though, you know, some people say, oh, that that thing made history, right? Mm-hmm. I think that the event is separate. History, it is. It, it is the narration around it. It is the reconstruction around it. So you would say history is not the actuality? Uh, absolutely not. Hmm. Uh, but again... Not the expert here, uh, but I I think that the event is the event, and then whatever you you the information you gather, the way you narrate the event, right? So history is the to to try to understand. I feel like history is more like the how can we call it the way the game is called rather than the game. It's like what the what the what the people what the commentators say on TV during the game, right? Rather than the game itself, 
the game itself is not history. The game itself is the event. So the the pass, the touchdown pass, is not history, but John Madden talking about the touchdown pass. Exactly. Hmm. Interesting. Because that is the event. <laughs> what do you thoughts on that? That's interesting. I haven't really, I haven't thought about it that way. But I, I might be wrong here, right? And this is, and we 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 always go back and forth with Anthony. We sometimes with this with the, me. <laughs> that was a, no, no, not, about with the, this not, not about this thing. <laughs> I'm saying in the, in the podcast, right? Yes, yes. During the podcast. I, I think that that, so it's this, it's time is what's the, is what separates a historian from the philosopher. So the historian is wedded to the past tense, trying to understand the present, right? So, but for the historian, the past is just as real and in many ways more real than the present because there's no present without the past. Mm -hmm. So that for a historian, and again, issues of historicism come up, that how is the how much more real is the past than the present? So for the now the philosophers are always worried about the now. Right now is the most important time mm -hmm. ever. The historian's like, well that might be the case, but you can only understand now by understanding the past. So there's that narrative actively going back and investigating, mining data, right? Going looking for sources and evidence. And that is the the activity of history is for an event that you weren't around with. Yes. Okay. So you weren't around for an event and I, now I've got to go research it. So the act of writing the history is taking place way after the event even happened. Mm. So I, I would, I mean, I would agree with you. The, the touchdown pass is the actual event. It makes history, but only because somebody has recorded it. Okay. So, okay, so history is a relation between us and past events rather than the past events themselves. I, I would say so. I think, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah. So I, uh, I have a question because Gene has, um, you know, has pointed in the direction uh, multiple times. There's the idea that in order to understand the present, to un yeah, we need, we need to know the past, right? We need, well, in order to, to figure out where, where we're at, we need to understand the past. Is that even true, though? Because I, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna play Nietzsche here mm -hmm. and be like, uh, this story is not good for you. Actually, it's bad for you. Can you, you give an example of being bad for you? Of what the difference would look like between understanding something without the history and then with the history, and why that second well, one would be bad. Well, the fact that you, I guess that the the classic by now criticism is that if you're always worried about where things come from, the origin, and understanding the the past of things, you're actually missing what you're actually doing, right? You're always deferring to someone else's authority hmm. rather than making the decision that you need to make, rather than doing the things that you need to do because you're always conditioned by, hey, but this has happened because of this, right? And not because of anything else. Um, there's like plenty of things that we don't want to talk about uh, that right now are being decided this way, right? Mm -hmm. Well, this is not good and you shouldn't do this because in the past this was this. And when you complain and say, look, but this is different now, well, but you cannot discard that. That's part of the history. This comes mm. with this baggage, and therefore you need to, you need to adapt okay. to this narrative. Otherwise, you're bad. So, question. So, mm -hmm. I think what you're saying is like, it could become. Correct me if I'm wrong. It could become harmful if you look at the historical, like let's say contingencies mm -hmm. for some things happening as necessary conditions for the things happening mm -hmm. such that it's it's literally impossible for you to understand the thing apart from those past circumstances I, right I and guess, that's an issue yes i guess the good way i'm trying to to think of something that doesn't get us trouble mm -hmm. um let's think of it this way so let's assume there is a specific um a specific painting that i like yeah and it's beautiful painting, object objectively beautiful, let's say, and I can start interpreting it, or I can I can just enjoy it uh, aesthetically, right? Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, you come along and be like, uh-uh, don't enjoy this painting because the history of the guy painting this, what's behind it, right? The way this came to be, it's horrible, and this person was a misogynist, a racist, this and that. Therefore, you should not enjoy this mm, because right. and. At this point, you need to respect the narrative, which in this case equals to the history, right? And if you don't, then you're in trouble. Then so, bad. So maybe we should, and Nietzsche, I think, will, will kind of advocate for that. We should probably kick away all this past baggage that we have and start anew. 
uh, which is terrible. It's all, I mean, I have issues with that, but you know what I'm saying. But Nietzsche also uses the past to say that's what we should go back to. Yeah, With true. ancient Greece, right? Yeah. I mean, he says they have the right religion. That's an, a religion that empowers you, uh-huh. if not like Christianity. So he, you know, Birth of Tragedy, his first book. Yeah. Um, on top of everything else, I think Nietzsche's, I think Nietzsche's use of the past is, he's a great critic of it, mm-hmm. but he definitely uses it at the same Absolutely. time. It's hard not to, right? <laughs> right. I, I think the way you described it, Giuseppe, it seems to be that. So what we're what we're upset about is not so much the historical um, uh, event that took place, like somebody painted this th- this picture. Mm-hmm. You're worried about people's um, like sensibilities about the picture if they're going to be hurt because mm-hmm. the artist wasn't a good person. You're you're not. You're doing you're doing some history, but I think what you're doing more of is is more of a sort of an ethical critique. Mm-hmm. There's a normative thing there yeah. that isn't in the history itself. Agreed, and it becomes more problematic the further away the history is from you. So the mm-hmm. closer it is, that critique will stick. Yeah. Right. But if you're talking about what the Mongols did, and you're saying you shouldn't go to Mongolia because of Genghis Khan, <laughs> like. That doesn't make any sense. Like, of course I'm going to go visit Mongolia, right? Yeah, uh, okay. That's yeah, no, funny. of course. No, no, I understand. I understand. It's, uh, it makes sense. So I think Gene is agreeing with you, but saying that's not a problem of history, but a problem of certain social political frameworks. Oh, sure. It's like critical race theory. Yeah. Because that's what everyone's talking about right now. Now, I'll, before I comment on it, I'll just, I have... Yeah, my lips are shut. I, I well, as, I, as much as I would like to. But. Well, I, I, I mean, it kind of, I'm involved in it, right? It of comes course. up where I teach and all this kind of where you guys, te- where I'll teach. But if you listen to people who are pushing critical race theory, there's like a popular narrative out there about it, and it is actually what they're trying to do. Mm-hmm. And if you if you talk people who are doing it in earnest, they're like, we we just want the story told. We're not trying to change anyone's mind. We just say that things that ha- things happen in the past that are very important and they should not have been omitted. And mm-hmm. we would like them in the, in the narrative now to tell a fuller picture. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. No. But what people usually hear is they hear the, the, that more popular narrative that's coming from the news and everything else, and this sinks into the sort of the, uh, the ether of society, if you will, so, you know, and, and everyone's got, got a view on it, but they don't know anything about it. And mm. I think that that is the general issue that I, that I was trying to point out at. The problem is that as much as the work of the historian is is the one that you're trying to describe, just to to make a more, to paint a a better picture, a picture that's more, uh, that includes more facts than he did before. The issue is that it becomes a matter of. Let's put it this way, people are always going to pick and choose the amount of facts that are there, right? Even the meta history of critical race theory is gonna, somebody's gonna pick and choose the things that we're gonna talk about. Mm-hmm. And depending on who controls the narrative at a certain point, will go in one direction or the other. Um, I think that that's inevitable. And the problem is how how do we not get stuck into this? And because of because of the very nature of society today, if you want to, at least American society today, it seems almost I can how can I say almost impossible not to make even history into a matter of politics, right? And mm. the, is the solution remove history? So the same way we remove the political aspect of it too? No, obviously not. But there must be a way in which we can trace back to something that's less charged, if if possible at all. I think that kind of floating in the background here are a couple questions about like what does it mean to understand something? Mm-hmm. And what does it mean to value something? And how do you separate those things, right? Like, can you have an understanding that's distinct from the way you value something? And, like, at what point does understanding cease to be comprehension in an objective sense and start to mean, like, oh, you can't understand it unless you have the same normative baggage that, like, I'm bringing with me? So, mm. well, what? Mm. What are you thinking? Because I... No, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I, okay, so I was going to say, for example, you take something really basic because it also may be an issue of like some things can be attached from their history literally and some things cannot, right? So you take a basic concept, the famous bachelor, right? Mm-hmm. Unmarried male, okay? So someone throws that out there and they say, in order to understand the necessary conditions of what bachelor is, right, the essential properties of bachelorness, 
that has nothing to do with the past. Mm-hmm. So there's at least some instances of abstract concepts where the history, in a literal sense, is not relevant to the definition of it, mm-hmm. right? But then I think the issue is when you get into empirical events and rather than abstract concepts like particular concrete things, and you say, well, how should I, how should I interpret this? And I think interpretation is more than just understanding, right? But it's, I think that history doesn't exist without... There's no understanding history. What, do you, what is that? How can you... Un- history cannot be understood. It can only be interpreted. I'm not trying to say something that sounds fancy, but it's mm-hmm. just... Isn't it? Uh, uh, you, don't, you never understand. You, you always have a filter. And the filter is your specific uh, positioning, time-wise, space-wise. And, you know, people... Now we're adding, like, mm-hmm. race and, uh, and gender and those... T- your positioning in society, I think... As much as historians will like to be like physicists, right? They're not observing the particle. There's no it's not the, the view from nowhere. You are involved in the in the way you interpret the event. You are you you're putting there a specific filter that I don't think is and I don't think it's a they're doing bad history. I don't think I don't think you can avoid it. Yeah, I th- what the historian is attempting to do is to ascertain motive. Mm. why these people did what they did by looking at certain kinds of evidence. Now, they can't look at all the evidence, mm-hmm. and that's not going to put them inside someone's head to ascertain the motive to begin with, but that's what they're trying to do. Why did these people do what they did? And so you, you the historian is going to be, you can't look at everything. I, I guess a good example would be, let's take the Middle Ages. So there are Christians who live now, there are Catholics who live now, mm-hmm. who their version, their understanding of Christianity is vastly different. There's no great chain of being now. Mm-hmm. That's not our overarching metaphysics, but that's what it was in, the, in, in Catholic Middle Ages, right, in mm-hmm. the West. So, the, but the historian doesn't care about the great chain of being. The historian cares about more so the political crises uh, of the Catholic Church when, you know, you've, you've, um, uh, you've got competing popes, right? Uh, the Great Schism, 1054, I think it was. So, the historian's interested in that and trying to find out what was the motivation for that, but can only go so far because you can't get into the minds of these people. You can only go by the evidence that they left. And you're basically in this situation is basically Kant's phenomena and noumena mm-hmm. all over again, mm-hmm. but just in a historically big way. And I'm wondering, and again, I, I've never done, well, I've never done historical research in the sense of going and looking for events of doing like, history or literature, if you want, why when you rec- try to figure out what Foucault was trying to say or this or that and go look at all the sources and stuff like that. So it's different. Just to say that I don't have direct experience of this, but I'm wondering, right, whenever somebody's uh, looking for for evidence, this somebody also is kind of picking and choosing, not necessarily with malice, right? Because whenever you say this, people think, oh, maliciously or to conceive the truth. No. Mm. I'm saying it is a natural process to look at all amount of information you have in front of you and say, these are valid, these I will consider good, and the ones that I'm going to use, and these are not good, this information is not, doesn't fit in the narrative, and therefore, hello everybody. They're excited for Christmas break. And therefore, uh, I'm not going to use it. This other information, it's there, It's not less valid. It just doesn't fit the overall narrative, so I'll put them away. Famously, yeah. the Bible, like with the Gospels, there's, you know, in the in the Catholic uh, Bible, at least, there's four Gospels. There are the canonic one, the one that were accepted. Mm-hmm. There were more than four, yeah. but the others didn't fit the narrative, so they were cut off. And now, historically, those are the Gospels, but that doesn't mean that there weren't any more, right? And I'm wondering if the entire uh, historical enterprise works that way, where it's just... A different, how can we say, um, kind of a socially accepted mythology, I would call it, right? Hmm. And I'm going in a direction that you don't like, I know, Anthony. But it's. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but it's, it is, um, it is this idea that it's just a mythology, just like it's a, it's a story like another. So I, I think that you, you put a, your, the emphasis on a nice point there that you have to leave stuff out. And there's, a, there's always things that you're not going to be able to tell. 
and on the, on the flip side of that coin, the, you're always one discovery away from having to rewrite the entire history that you thought you knew. Mm-hmm. And so that, and, but philosophy, philosophy is a much higher bar in order to do that. So that's where the two disciplines sort of separate themselves. You can only you can only understand that new evidence in a in a fundamentally philosophical way. What is understanding questions questions of epistemology? But the historian, you know, like the God, the Gospels are a good example. We still don't even know who wrote them. Yeah. But the, you know, there I mean, there they are. Why was the Book of Job left out? You know, who knows? Go mm-hmm. ask the Council of Nicaea. Well, we can't yeah, do that exactly. Mm-hmm. And and. And so, yeah, the historian runs into these problems of uh, of, of politics because uh, like that you had brought up earlier. Because usually, the historians doing this kind of work, there's a there's an overarching political reason, mm-hmm. usually often for it. Mm-hmm. So, um, and okay. yeah, no, I'm just saying that it's just be, think I would I would incur, like think today. Who who's who's writing books and who talks about controlling narratives and things like that? These are politicians who talk this way. Mm-hmm. And so why why are politicians going to read a book that no one writes? It's because now they're leaving a piece of historical evidence behind. Mm-hmm. So in the future, that can be referenced. It's yeah. about controlling the narrative in the future so you publish stuff now. So, and you intentionally frame it. Yeah. Right. And, and yeah. in some sense, this is more significant to the people looking back because the people <clears throat> looking back don't see what actually happened they see right. what was left right so marx called this the superstructure right mm-hmm. this is how the the elites would would uh, have control over society and that's exactly what the how the game is played i think he's right on that i thought i was touching your playing footsies there but that's a chair <laughs> no, Sorry. that's not me that's philosopher a... footsie <laughs> <laughs> no. what is a footsie uh, uh, that would have been a very hard leg there. i don't know what it is but i think kevin Bacon's is it your leg it. i don't know <laughs> no but the, the, the thing is there uh, I mean, this is important. I think for, for as us philosophers, this is important because, um, you know, Hume, Hume was regarded as a great philosopher uh, and a great historian. He writes this very great book on the history of England. Um, and then Hegel's the big one. And uh, just as sort of like a side note, I, I think people don't appreciate how big an impact that, uh, that Hegelianism had on the teaching of American history. Mm-hmm. It is... How we teach it. Which aspect today. in particular, for those who are listening who are maybe not familiar with Hegel, do you think is like, oh, this is this is pivotal to how we look at this stuff? All right. So just just for my own like so biases here. Of so course. when I was in graduate school, I was like, oh my god, what I'm going to write? I had no idea. I, and I was trying to figure out what I was going to write, and I thought I was going to write about Hegel before I wrote on Schopenhauer. Mm-hmm. And because um, I like I liked Hegel, mm-hmm. I like Schopenhauer more. It's a different story, but <laughs> but I I liked Hegel. And you start to read Hegel, and I like what he had to say about history. And so, you know, Hegel argues that the change. Now, this is where where Hegel's a philosopher, so he's taken motive out of the people mm-hmm. and put it in the absolute spirit. Mm-hmm. That is the motivation. That's what causes change in history. Marx would say it's class struggle, right? So Marx inverts Hegel's system in that way. But Hegel is very clear: the evolution of history is the establishment of the nation state, the Western nation state. When we teach American history, that's exactly how we teach it. The evolution mm. of the American nation. Hmm. Interesting. So I didn't know if you were going to bring up that aspect. Like something I thought you were going to bring up is the idea of like things are just reactions to reactions to reactions. And Hegel has this idea, like I've brought it up on here before, that like everything is just a circle within a circle within a circle. And so like eat the latest moment, always has all other previous moments within it mm-hmm. and is, i mean this whole like uber contextual thing yeah uh, i was wondering if that was where you were going with it but i do have a question about this this way of looking at things um so whether you're talking about hegel or marx or, or i suppose any um way that's similar to that do you think that history is intrinsically teleological like, does it have to be? And if it doesn't, is that just the way we happen to look at it? Can I, can I ask you to clarify what you mean? A little bit. So when you say, right, the establishment of the nation state, mm-hmm. when you say, like, class yeah. struggle, right, there's always this idea that hist- things happen in order to blank. And you always look at things as being uh, some chain that's leading up to something, some end, right? When the end is finally reached is the end of history. Something like that, okay. right. 
Hegel's got progress built into his system, obviously. Um, it depends on your probably your assumption of human nature. Okay, so let me let's say uh, you personally. Do you think the way you approach history is teleological? And if so, what is the telos you have in mind? And if not, why not? Uh, my personal approach, I don't. I don't think history is teleological. Okay. I. I've. So it's not for the sake of something. I don't think so. Um, nation states come from people. People had to pre-exist first, I, I, and and so. Uh, I think now this is an interesting topic because when Hegel's writing, he's you know Germany's not unified yet. Mm. They're going to unify Germany through his philosophy. Um, well, through blood and iron, through wars, actually, through Bismarck. Um, and, but, but Hegel, they're going to do it through the university. That's going to be the, uh, the class that runs the show. So you don't need the, Catholic, you don't need the church anymore, the clergy. You're going um, to have really smart people in the universities, and they're going to r- run the country. It's essentially what we have here in the United States. Um, so people in university, you think they run the show? Because well, they think they do. Oh, right. exactly. well, if you, well, I mean, just look at who's, uh, and look at who's in the White House. Um, no, it's true, and it certainly trickles down. Wait a minute, right? Whoa, 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 whoa. Pause, pause. Well, what's? <laughs> I mean, what? Why? Who's in the White House? I mean, what are we talking about? I'm, I'm confused here. Well, so they, so the, 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 the Ivy League schools usually push out. The people who, oh, run, that's who, what you mean. who okay. run Washington. Gotcha, gotcha. No, yes, I understand. I got it. They they set policy. They're the ones who see history as being folding progressively. Hmm. The my problem, my issue is when you think there's a predetermined way history is going to unfold, you tend to give secondhand attention to the sufferings of people. Like, well, we're going for the greater good. Suck it up, you know. Yes. <laughs> like there's this like quasi utilitarian thing. And, and right, and Hegel would say, "Well, it only looks like backsliding, <laughs> <laughs> you know." And and he's just dismissing all the horrors that can go on around you. And you say, "Well, this we're going towards somewhere better." Right, right. And and you know, especially with the environmental crisis right now, that I, whole idea of history is progressive should really be called into question because we're progressing towards what essentially? No one's immune from the environment. It's you know, we're all part and parcel of it. We're natural objects. The whole thing. Mm-hmm. I and and you know teleology. Look teleology because I, I wrote about it on my master's thesis too. They had a hard time initially taking teleology out of science, hmm. and it seems that the last place that's sort of holding on to is is history, um, and that's maybe what the competing narratives are about in in some larger way. And is that like a bug rather than a necessary feature of history itself? The the teleology, the, the having a, a telos in in doing history. Hmm. I I think historians I think it depends on what the historians looking into. If they're looking in the politics, there's some progress in there for sure because you're you, uh at least in American history, you're always arguing how the country's got got has gotten better. Mm. And in some ways, I don't want to I don't want to say it hasn't. I mean, <laughs> look, quite honestly, I, it, I'd say so. It, well, look, it's it's, got, you think it's got better? Uh, a little bit. A little yeah, bit. I don't want I don't want to I don't want to say it's uh, everything's great, but I also want to say everything's bad either. I mean, um, where is it going? I don't know. I think it's more interesting. Like, how do you know where it's progressing towards? Mm. Like, how could you conceivably know that? Right. Like, I and and that's the thing about history. We've talked about this. Is I hardly remember yesterday. <laughs> All right. So the his, for the historian to go dig up the past and be like, yeah, 200 years ago, know exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. Like, what? Like, have some humility, bro. Like, someone. <laughs> One time I had a conversation, a surreal conversation with somebody. We were talking about, you know, uh, some documentary that this person has saw before, has seen before. And the documentary was talking about the way men were living like uh, a million years ago. Mm-hmm. And this person was yelling at, at me, be like, I don't understand you academics. How the hell did they know they were doing five million years ago? Mm. There's no way of knowing it. They're obviously making it up. And I'm like, all right. I mean, there, we have some indications, right? That's also like a weird, that's like a false dichotomy, right? Of Either course. we know everything or, or you nothing. know nothing. <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up because so, so where's the value then? And I think the value is in works like uh, Gibbon, the fall, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. So he's he's telling you the history, 
but he's given you a sort of a moral lesson about how decay and decline in a society happens. Mm-hmm. And if you're not careful, it's going to happen to you. Mm-hmm. So there's a so there's a value in that work, even though you know, he, given obviously he's an Enlightenment historian, didn't live anywhere near Rome. That work you can get sort of a, a of history. What you know, history's repeating itself because it's still people doing the show, if you will. Um, uh, you know, Vol- Voltaire said that history is a pack of lies, but I think the the value is in that bigger uh, logos of society. When you sit and you go, "Oh, wow!" So collapse is a feature of society. It's not a bug. This happened a lot. Okay. And even if you got some of the history wrong, that is still a valuable lesson for today, right? Mm-hmm. So, something yeah. like that, I guess. I'd, I'd like to hear yeah. what you two think. I, so I have multiple issues with <laughs> not what you're saying, but the, 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 the general idea that you describe. I think there's a couple of things uh, to be said there, right? And also, I wanted to say something about this idea of progress before, but we'll talk about it later. Mm-hmm. Um, this idea that... Well, first of all, the idea that the past is this edifying tale that we can use not to repeat our mistakes, I think doesn't take away from the fact that it could be a tale, right? We have Aesopus, right, that write, um, writes tales, like little tales where animals are speaking and saying like that. And they're, they're edifying, right? There's mm-hmm. a moral. The moral of the story is. So the fact that we do this for with this bigger narratives that we call history doesn't take away from the fact that it might be just interpretations, as, we were, as I was saying before. It doesn't, doesn't have to be objective. As you say, the guy lived way past uh, when the Roman Empire fell. Um, on the other hand, are we, again, why do we think that knowing what happened in the past is going to help us somehow? Why is this, is, is this value that we think is there really there? Do we learn from the fact that we know what happened. Because if you look at the history of the world, it seems that we don't learn at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it seems to it seems that we I mean, this thing being there or not being there, it just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't see I don't see it seems I let's put it this way. I think that I see the historical historical lesson mm-hmm. used more to constrain people that would do things in a different way rather than being used to actually, you know, make sure that we don't repeat the same mistakes. Because the the people that are in charge, let's say, the people that 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 are um how can we say telling the tale, they're using the narrative, the one they have power to use the narrative to their own ends, have the tendency of saying, well this is cannot happen again. Well this can happen again. So we're gonna make sure that this doesn't happen again. So there's like this <coughs> conscious value choosing and brushing aside like this one more or less conscious and again i i, I might be very cynical no about i know I, I see your i see your point but I'll, I'll give you an example i hope might make you feel better <laughs> uh, i'm the pessimist <laughs> <isn't it? laughs> so um during the cuban missile crisis kennedy's in office and this is um what we're told, this is the closest we get to, to nuclear war w- mm-hmm. uh, with the Soviet Union, right? They have missiles uh, in Cuba right off our coast, and, and this ratches it up, all the, ten- all, all the Cold War tension you can imagine, right? Just, I think it's 61, 62. And so Kennedy is, has this decision. You know, what, what do, I, do I de-escalate? What, what happens? Do I escalate? Do we hit first? Or do I listen to my generals who just want me to go to war? So at the time, he's reading Barbara Tuckman's book. Mm-hmm. The Guns of August, mm-hmm. which is a, a very famous book about World War One. It's fan- and she's a. If you're going to read any of his history, she's a great place to start. She's a great uh, other book on on the the calamitous uh, 14th century when the plague hits and everything else. But anyway, so Kennedy is reading The Guns of August, and it's a book of history, and that is what prevents him from taking the offense against the Soviets, and we ratcheted things down. So what was the so. That's a, it's one instance. I, I don't know if it's going to swaz your soul or anything, but um, <laughs> Kennedy, what, what was the lesson that he said that he learned that Tuckman taught him from the past? Is that things get out of real control quickly and people forget how it started and you just start, this is exactly how World War I started, right? 
and that before you know it, you're in a full blown out war. Mm-hmm. So it only takes one small event to cascade and like snowball effect into something much larger and much bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he and he read that and he was she convinced him and thank goodness that she did. That's that's interesting, right? Because now we're talking this now we're talking about this and it's an historical fact again, right? That we're saying that this is what Kennedy said, then this is what happened. And but, and you know what's interesting is after World War Two, uh, you know, so there there's the body count is not forgotten. Mm-hmm. Um and you have to th- you have to think that and this has always been the problem under democracy. I mean this is uh, in Plato, it's in Aristotle. It and it, you're sending other people's kids to 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 die. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, and that's that's the problem. Um, so when you declare war, it better be a war worth fighting, like World War Two. Mm-hmm. And that was not something worth doing. I mean, Korea was after that. I forget it. Vietnam was was about to go off. So, yeah. I think the the point here, which I don't know if you buy, is that the, the how would you say the historical value of preventing bad things from happening mm-hmm. is greater than zero, right? Okay. Um, do, or are you still... That's, I'm listening. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I don't know. I'm, I'm, just, uh, I'm just a little skeptic about the fact that we actually learn anything. So one of the... I think there is that problem, and I'm wondering if that's kind of just because of this larger tendency of humans to not be able to understand things that they're less familiar with and that they're detached from. Like, for example... If let's say you have a sibling or a parent that is like a drug addict and an abuser, right? You have not only the objective facts about the situation that anyone could have if they read about it and paid attention. You have this kind of direct experience of it. There's like intuitive extra that you gain. And for whatever reason, this makes it more of like a focal point in your mind. Like you orient yourself around this and see how I'm going to... You know, act and all that good stuff. And then you have kids, mm-hmm. and maybe your kids saw it a little bit, and they're like, oh, yeah, that's not good. I don't want to let myself do that. And, like, so there's a little bit. But their kids, they don't see great-grandma or grandpa anymore, right? Mm-hmm. So it kind of is just this weird echo that means nothing to them, and they're like, okay, I guess I've heard about in school that you shouldn't abuse people and do drugs. And then you just repeat this process, and you get to a point where it's like, I I've literally have no access to the lessons, so I don't know the thing that you know. Only we're not talking about drug addicts and abuse. We're talking about you know dictatorship, for example, or cultural decay. But I, I kind of feel that this makes my point because oh may- maybe what 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 I'm seeing is you're saying well whenever you are witnessing the fact itself, mm-hmm. you're very very touched by it and you are learning from the fact itself, which is not the story about the fact is the fact. And the more story there is in there, the more history there is there, the less I learn. I so think the utility of history for my life is inversely proportional to the amount of history that's question, made. Question. I, I, is that incidental, though? I, like, th- does that is that a fault with history, or is that a fault with people not engaging with history properly? Because I'm, I'm leaning towards the latter. Mm, I, think, possible. I think... So gonna, let's uh, take co- let's take COVID. I'm being, I'm being the bad guy. Here. No, I like this. This is good. <laughs> let's take COVID for example. Oh, he's choosing another topic. Uh, so right. you go. You go. I was thinking about that too, actually. How do, I know. I was thinking about it too. How how do you understand what, what's happening? Mm-hmm. And immediately, people went to the 1918 Spanish influenza pandemic. Yep. So when you need to understand something now, you go back and you look to the past. So the so we we tend to not value it until we need it. Mm-hmm. In the moment, so COVID's a good example uh, in class. So the College Board um, has a, a DBQ they they have on the Spanish influenza, and I I give it every year. It's a topic, right? People move around, spread disease, and so it's a DBQ. And I I've given it for years now, and I can tell you without a doubt, the kids who look at that DBQ now have a much mm. more <laughs> salient understanding. Wow of what was going on mm-hmm. back then because they're currently going through it now. Of course. Whereas where I gave it to kids five years ago, it doesn't, it's not, it doesn't resonate. It doesn't have the same meaning. And I asked them, I mean, because all, all the buzzwords are in these documents, social distancing, and mm-hmm. just kind of go down the list, yeah. quarantine and whatnot. Yeah. Hmm. Um, I don't know if you guys um, agree, and uh, I'll 
again, I, I think there's more to say about this, and maybe we can uh, later, but to, to kind of inch towards something else, I think there are certain words and concepts that are embedded in the historical research in the discipline of history that I think is worth discussing maybe in the next episode if we are out of time or something like that. Okay. You want to give a preview? Like I'm thinking like things like the word fact, right? Mm. A factual thing. What is, because history, if it's different than mythology, it needs to be factual, right? Mm. What is a fact? How do we establish an historical fact? Or even event. Event, right? Or another an, other things that we need to discuss is like how do we the interpret is is again we haven't talked about interpretation much. I think it, what does it mean? How does this historical research works? Because again, some people are writing, and we we have the, this tendency of believing that history needs a little bit of distance from the fact in order to be realist. Otherwise, it's just chronicling things, right? What kind of things um, do I need to consult, right? Because it was easier before, just written stuff, and you go there. If I have to do an history in 20 years, I have to do a history of, 2020 and 2019 what do i go and look the the cdc uh kind of documentation uh karen's facebook log what do i look at Mm. is every evidence the same evidence is another word that maybe we need to we need to look into because understanding those things i think is fundamental to understand what this thing that we call history is because the moment we if we end up establishing those things are kind of iffy if we don't know what these things are, then really we're in trouble because then history becomes pure story, pure narrative without Uh-oh. any kind of hook to, to reality, which is not my agenda here. I'm just, uh, you know, nagging this idea that, nagging you on this idea that we have, that we have this established thing that is valuable, that is great, and that is established, that is mm-hmm. objective, and so on and so on. No, I think you're right. And we... uh We'll explore this in the next time. We'll do this uh, next episode still with Gene. All right. See you guys. See you.